Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. So glad to be here today. Um, I think uh, let's just, I have a million questions, of course, but let's just start um, with a little reading from Nina and Chelsea um, just to get a taste of their books. If you haven't um, bought them already, you can always buy them through Skylight. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're some of my favorite books. Um, that I've read this year and there's been a lot of great books this year. So I really recommend them, but let's start with, um, Nina, would you like to go first? Yeah, I would love to. Um, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This is my book. Good morning. Destroyer of men's souls, a memoir of women, addiction and love. And I'm going to read for a few minutes, um, about motherhood. Um, starting in a place where I am the mother of a young son, and depressed. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Now in California, I was medicated, but pooling all around me like slick dark blood was the discovery that medication wasn't enough. I was at the beginning of a PhD program, but I operated at a remove from my intimidatingly smart and competitive classmates. They called one another colleagues as though we were already important. My husband was building his career and that was demanding, consuming, He didn't quite know how to be with me in the pain of the miscarriage, a wound we patched up hastily with the engagement and then the baby. He didn't seem to notice how far I'd been carried after the birth of our son by the tides of postpartum depression and existential uncertainty. Or maybe he just didn't know what to do. I certainly didn't. Weren't we basically children? How had we expected to know anything at all? When our son was a baby, my husband became a weekend sailor. He had often been gone for a night or two during the week on short business trips to New Mexico or Nevada. Then on Saturdays, he left for long stretches to race around the bay on his wealthy boss's cutter. When would he be back? It depends on the wind, he would say, a line I can now hear as Odyssean in its grandiosity. Why didn't I just say don't go? Because he'd worked all week? Because he made most of the money and had earned it? Because I wanted him to be happy? Because I didn't know the word no? Why couldn't I be one of those bitchy wives who just says, you've got to be kidding me, absolutely fucking not? The kind who says, we're Ottoman shopping on on Saturday, it's on your calendar. Even the kind who says, I can't do the whole day on my own. I've always wondered what that feels like, but I was a different wifely species altogether. The kind who tells her husband to go, that it is fine, and then cries that she is lonely. Who wants her feelings to be intuitive, not subject to the vulgarity of needing to be spoken. The tears I cried in those early years, they seemed like a fairy tale quantity. Would they fill a measuring cup, a gallon jug, a stock pot? I was Rapunzel or a seaweed-haired hag. It depended on the day, the rain, my mood, my meds, my milk. I say I was carried by tides, which implies helplessness, which is how I felt. I created the chaos I lived in, but I wasn't able to see that. Some days I could see it, but still felt there wasn't anything I could do. All of my metaphors then were marine, shades of blue and shipwrecks. Fetuses I imagined were fish moving through the dark ocean of me as I leaned seasick over the bow. I was boundaryless, my marriage aqueous. A note from my diary while pregnant with my second child reads, I am sharing my body with a moving, swimming creature, the curvature of whose back I can sometimes lay my hand against. It's uncomfortable, this pressure against the walls of me. I try to take a breath and make more space to share myself. In my diary, I wrote that the second saucer-eyed baby was an ocean liner turning herself around. She was a tiny whale. I wrote about my panic, fear, self-hatred, confusion, 
I wrote, I want to make it to more solid ground, even if I have to paddle my way there like this in humiliating desperation. One day I walked to urgent care and said with a dissociated calm that I was afraid I might hurt myself. The receptionist looked at my belly. I was sent straight back to be seen. In one photograph from that time, my husband is standing alone on a boat on the black surface of the water, holding onto the mast, looking tall and commanding and handsome and entirely alone, literally adrift. I want to swim, I wrote. I want to feel the clogged, perfect quiet of underwater and feel this big belly, big body float. I want to float, I want to float, I want to float. I was fucking drowning. The hot, young, carefree love I had with my husband was transformed by marriage, babies, and the daily dulling of adulthood. Forces I imagined working on our relationship the way a pair of hands acts on a piece of pottery as it spins on the wheel. Gentle pressure, every day a new ridge, a narrowing. We had been together only a few years, but daily life was already a struggle. The threads of hardship were all braided together. Who knows if they were correlated, causal, or all one thing. One, I was depressed and anxious. Two, we both drank too much. Three, no matter what, the baby wouldn't sleep through the night. I was up with him at midnight, 1 a.m., 3 a.m., always up for the day by about 5.15, nuzzling his neck and watching the dog pee in the yard. You have to sleep train, people would tell us, as though we hadn't tried that yet. By 6 o'clock, he'd had a hot cereal and an episode of Sesame Street and sat bouncing in his exorcer, a veritable command center of pointless toys smacking its plastic tray, looking to me with his beautiful turquoise eyes for the day's direction, its activities and its zest. I was on my third cup of coffee by the time the sky brightened into dawn, my own eye sockets like dry grainy pits in my pounding head. At 6.30, my husband got up with the alarm and smoked on the stoop first thing in a shearling lined coat, peering with disdain at another harsh, damp morning. When he kissed us goodbye and the engine turned over and he was gone to work, my stomach plummeted. I felt plunged into uncertainty as though alone in a falling elevator. I was ashamed to discover that I was a little bit afraid of the day, and that made me feel a little afraid of myself. Crazy. I locked the door, drew a long breath, and turned to my son. Me and you, baby, I said, and he stomped his feet in recognition. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, all right, Chelsea, would you like to go next? Yeah, hi, everyone. Thank you, Skylight, for having me. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, Nina, I love that part that you read. Oh, you just get it, all of those, those subtle truths. I just love your book. Um, so I'm going to be reading just a little, a few pages from my novel, Godshot. Um, this is in the beginning, and it's a scene kind of right after um, the main character, Lacey May, discovers her first period, and she's in the bathroom with her mother. I stepped out of the shower and let the heat of the apartment dry me. My mother was still at the bathroom mirror, head flipped upside down, filling the bathroom with hairspray. Some might think a good religious woman must be plain and clean-faced, but a gift of the spirit, it was fine for a woman to prepare her body and adorn herself in God's light. The brighter the shine, the easier his angels could spot us. Byrne wanted the women pretty because everything God saved was beautiful. He wanted the women pretty, maybe, I wondered sometimes, but did not say, to attract infidels to the church, to dangle a prize to be awarded on the other side of conversion. Nevertheless, it was something of evil to make a man stumble. Whenever the sermons turned to the matter of stumbling, I pictured men with black holes for eyes, walking but falling, arms reaching out, hands landing upon women's bodies unawares. Under a trance they were, and whose fault was it? Women, God created beauty. Women, lead men not into temptation. But what was my mother to do with her beauty? She couldn't pray it away. It came up from inside her. It was not just the arrangement of eyes and nose and mouth. It was something unnameable that could not be achieved with makeup or manipulation of hairstyle. She had a gap between her front teeth that she considered an imperfection, but it was what threw her beauty over the edge. It was what drove her men crazy. I knew Vern was captivated by the way she looked, considered it to be God's gift. I had to agree, it was a gift. I imagine no one had what she had for miles and miles though we hadn't left peaches since becoming saved, so there was no way of making sure. Under my towel, I reached between my legs and pressed a finger just inside. 
I wondered where the blood was coming from exactly. I wanted my mother to sense my question and tell me all I would need to know really fawn over me. But she handed me a pad wrapped in thin pink plastic, no ceremony at all. Maybe keep this between us for a little while. A chill came over me in the still heat of the bathroom, and though I'd never come down with a prophecy before, the prickle that spread from the top of my head to my fingertips felt close to a kind of warning. But mom, just wait until the next one. It's not that long to wait. I brushed past her and into our bedroom. I left the door open so I could see her finish getting ready. What was it I loved about watching her sew? It wasn't as if I saw myself in her, some future promise. Though I had her honeyed hair down my back, her freckles and water blue eyes, I carried the blunt nose and jutting chin of my father, a truck driver out of needles, my mother had told me, someone who left before I could remember, she liked to say. I knew it wasn't true. I had memories like floaters in an eye, there one moment, gone the next. His arms throwing my mother's thin body into a deep dumpster one day and plates crashing against walls overhead on others. His boots as he kicked her. The sound of a person spitting on another person is a particular shame. She never mentioned any of that, but was quick to recall his one short leg, the way he had mixed up letters when he tried to read, and how he took one look at me and said I wasn't his. I put the pad into my underwear and angels did not sing. Out the window, all was the same, dead grass and paint peeling apartments. I got back into our bed, the double we'd shared since we were saved and no men came for visits anymore. It was a bent metal frame propping up a mattress that sagged in the middle, a feature I loved because it caused my mother and me to roll into each other in the night, waking each morning with our backs warmed and stuck together. I tried to pray, but nothing came. I didn't want to disobey my mother, but I sensed that obeying her by not about the blood might mean something much worse. She stood in the doorway now. I am your mother, she said. A reminder not to me, but to herself. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I didn't know which parts you both were going to read. And I think that those two sections are such an incredible pair. Um, what Nina read about the, um, the, the, the strange, viscous confusion of pre and postnatal, uh, postpartum, um, the, uh, that experience, and then um, Chelsea's equally physically uh, confounding experience of um, a transition from girlhood to womanhood that also, as you read it, I realized um, is a is a, a moment that connects you with your mother in this way that you aren't really up until that point, um, at least consciously. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a nice illustration of what these two books have in common, which on the surface um, might not seem super obvious. Um, Nina's memoir um, about and, and nonfiction exploration of codependency um, in romantic relationships and familial relationships. Um, and Chelsea's novel about a fraught mother-daughter um, relationship in this sort of drought-stricken um, Central California um, amidst a religious cult. On the surface, maybe those don't have very much in common, but um, they, I think, are born from the same um, idea, which is that loss and trauma uh, become imprinted in our physical body. Um, sometimes they are inscribed in our DNA, um, especially when our families fail us spectacularly or when we fail other people, and that um, there are, are at the center of these traumas women whose bodies and uh, consciousness are acted upon by rips in society, big or small. Um, and I think that that propels both of these books in a really interesting way. And it's why I'm grateful that we're talking about these books on Mother's Day, because it isn't a simplistic idea of um, 
motherhood, we all love our mothers, we come from mothers, it's, it really acknowledges the complexity of having come from another body, having um, given life to another body, um, and how fraught those relationships can be, um, especially when you introduce abandonment, addiction, loss, trauma. Um, and so I want to, I guess, start there um, on this Mother's Day. Uh, feels like a really honest uh, acknowledgement of the holiday. Um, what, when you, and, and I don't, and I don't know that you maybe thought this consciously while you were writing, but maybe during or after, what did you think about um, how you were talking about motherhood? Um, either during or in the, in the publication process as people have spoken about it to you. Um, how did you think about writing and talking about motherhood in this book? I'm happy to answer that um, first. First of all, that was such a beautiful kind of encapsulation of some of the similar terrain that Chelsea's book, which I love so much, does really feel, especially on particular pages, like it's directly in conversation with mine. Um, and especially around the question of motherhood and yeah, and living in a woman's body. And also sort of um, the idea of like the, the ways that we pursue love and also the ways that we are sort of pursued by love. There are a lot of like very salty, women characters in uh, both of our books who are still sort of undone by by love. Um, but motherhood, I was, you know, I mean, I was actually really kind of nervous to write about motherhood and to write honestly about the early years of motherhood. Um, it's wild to me that there still is, you know, there's increasingly, you know, more and more sort of honest conversation in the culture about the realities of motherhood. And even in spite of that, it is, does feel terrifying to like speak the truth that it wasn't always easy or perfect or, you know, there's still like a chasm between what we're willing to show on Instagram and what our actual <laughs> lives are like. And I was just very aware of um, the sense that I've always had as a mother that, that people are watching and judging and I, I really wanted it to come through in my book that you know, motherhood really, I think, sort of saved my life and has given my life purpose. And I have loved it, even the work of it all the way through. And I was really nervous about writing about it in the context of addiction and all these other sort of struggles in my life that it would seem, to be totally honest, like I would seem like I didn't love it enough or that I wasn't a good enough mother. And um, and those were conversations I had with early readers, people I trusted, and my own mother, um, who, you know, sort of like encouraged me to also write some of the joy of motherhood, and um, which I think I did, and I hope I did. And I do remember one funny conversation with my mom about including more of the joy of motherhood, and I, I said, I know, but it just doesn't move the story forward. Like, I, you know, I was like, I'll put some of that in. And I, I hope that that comes through, that it's the joy of my life, the most profound part of my life. But, but I also was like, you know, I had to, I was kind of like telling a dark story. Um, so it's complicated. And I think it's very complicated. And I hesitate to use the word brave in a cheesy way. But I think when women are writing about motherhood for real, it's, um, it's bold and it's a little bit scary and we are exposing ourselves to a particularly harsh kind of critique. Yeah, I really agree with that. I think so much about how in the language around these sort of mom communities, especially online, or if anyone's ever been on baby center, which is where I spent a lot of time on this little app when I was pregnant with my daughter six years ago. Um, Cause I just had no, idea what I was doing. And there's all these forums and communities that were so, it's so great to have access to, but you're also hearing a lot of voices. And one overarching theme, I feel like I picked up on right away that also felt so akin to my experience as a woman in general, was that if you say something negative about motherhood, you better couch it in gratitude immediately, or else you're a fucking monster. 
Um, and that was so apparent to me. And even if, even in the grocery store line, you know, I remember just being like, have the ergo on. I'm like so tired. I'm clearly having the worst day ever. Like there's not a lot going well for me. I've had one hour of sleep or something. And the cashier is like, how are you? And you're like, I'm so tired, but like, isn't she adorable? It's like you become mom. I remember that was so striking too, being on the phone with like a pediatrician or anyone that's helping you with your child. You're, you don't have a name anymore. You're just mama. Hey mama. Okay. Let's do it. And that, and I get it. It's like, you don't need to be saying my name. You have a million things on your plate, but it's funny how there is sort of this feeling of like, you're just, I don't know, you better be grateful or else. And it is scary to write really transparently about, and I've written a lot about my own mother in essays that have come out online and by and large, I get so much feedback from other women that's like, oh, yes, I relate to this so much. But then you'll get that one that's like, um, well, do you just want your mother to die? Don't you even care about it? It's like, and you're like, well, no, that's not what I'm getting at at all. But I think there is a pressure to always be super grateful, which it, it should go without saying in a way. It's like Nina was saying, it's like the joy of motherhood is so present, but maybe it doesn't always move the narrative along as much, especially when you have a limited space to really get at the heart of what can be so hard about it, um, which is so many different things for different women. And I love when I see the honest conversations around that. Um, so yeah, I, I just, you made me think of something. So in terms of your own fiction, then do you, um, was it, was it liberating or freeing in some way to write fiction about mother loss instead of nonfiction then? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for so long, I felt that fiction was my only way in. It was really a different emotional experience for me to write about it directly. And I loved the freedom that fiction offered in terms of kind of creating a scenario where maybe the character had a little more agency or things could be elevated to an extreme to really characterize the feelings that I was having inside. And, you know, one thing that happened writing this book was that when I started it, I wasn't a mother, but by the end, I had two kids. So that was a huge shift in just my identity. And it changed a lot of the ways that I wrote about motherhood throughout that process. Namely, it offered me a really different view into perhaps my own mother's experience, which was a real gift. And it, um, it offered a depth of compassion for her, just knowing what it is really like and how hard it is. And and then to balance that with an addiction and be a mother at the same time is um, just fraught with complication that I feel like it gave me a little more depth of perception with. Yeah. Um, and then Nina, going off of what Chelsea just said, um, something that I was really kind of struck with in your book is how openly you write about um, real people. And I apologize if this as feels like a fiction writer 101 question, but um, with that sort of ruthless honesty that you wrote about both other people and yourself, um, how did you, like, how did you approach that in your process? And is that sort of the parts of your book that are um, more research like a more straight nonfiction sort of research-based discussion of temperance or um, addiction and um, recovery. Um, were those sort of reprieves from that process? I'm just, I'm curious about how you approached that in nonfiction. Um, that's a good question and not a fiction 101 question. <laughs> I haven't really, I, it, yes, it was a reprieve. Definitely, there were days when I woke up and I thought, oh, thank God, today I'm just going to write about like 19th century history and not be in the immediacy of my own personal relationships and stuff. So it was at times a reprieve. But um, I actually feel really lucky in this regard because the people that I was writing about, I, I knew that I had their support and my family is super, super close. And I had read a couple of memoirists who I really respect, like Mary Carr or others who have talked about their process and the fact that, you know, 
they don't particularly want to write something that's going to like ruin someone's life or really upset someone. And so they do show people drafts or they show people the book before it's finished. So I knew from the start that I would do that. And, um, and I did, I think, try to write sort of more, tread more lightly at first. And then I just kept realizing and rereading my own writing, particularly about myself, actually, that uh, I just had to like go deeper. I would read something back that wasn't quite working and I would think, oh, no, like I have to keep, get, go, you know, make it hurt a little bit. <laughs> and, and, but I was really lucky when I was finished with the first draft, I sent it to all implicated parties and everybody read it and gave their blessing. And I think the thing that really, I knew that I was not writing anything that it wasn't really like, like contestable. And I think that that's another thing. I didn't feel I took great liberties. So there was nothing that was, untrue and even the man I call Kay in the book who I had this long tempestuous relationship with read it in draft form and in galley oh, wow. form and 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 had to concede that it was all true and was actually very loving and supportive also but um but I you know I tried to just like hew to reality and um and my family was like really amazing I, I was very lucky in that regard I don't think all memoirists are yeah yeah um there so I'm curious then for both of you is this are were these the first books these are the first books that you've published these are your debuts but are they the first books that you completed are they the first books that you tried to sell um because our audience is up particularly interested in how that process behind the scenes works. I'm curious about that journey to, to publication for you in this book. Yeah, um, this is really the first novel that I hung with for a long time. Um, I had written an early draft of this book from the mother's perspective. And I mean, if they were side by side now, they would seem like two completely different books. So in a way, it feels like there's this other book that perhaps I wrote and I had kind of attempted some other novel ideas, but this is definitely the first one that I really um, stuck with and, and simultaneously was actually writing a lot of short stories at the same time. Whenever I wanted a break from the novel, I would go write a story. Um, I love short stories. And so by the end, when we went to sell the novel, I realized I had the second book that had also been born out of some of the same worlds and landscapes and there's some reoccurring characters and I felt like the two books were really holding hands in a, in a way and so I wanted to kind of sell them together. Um, that felt important to me more just artistically because I was ready at that point to kind of move on and I didn't, I don't know, just symbolically I needed both books to kind of go on their journey at the same time and um, was lucky to find a publisher that was interested in that too. So, yeah. And I, um, I did actually try to write this book. I, I tried to fictionalize some of this material and I wrote probably 150 pages or so of like a novel that what really wasn't, didn't work. Um, Others agreed <laughs> it didn't quite work. And I think in retrospect, I think I was kind of trying to sort of squirm away from some of the hardest parts of telling this as my story. And um, I would love to try my hand at writing fiction at some other point, but, um, but yeah, I actually sent that um, partial novel to my agent and um, she was like a little bit lukewarm on it and thought, you know, like it was, not what you want to hear. And once I sort of reframed it, um, I sort of unlocked something by starting to think of this as a nonfiction project and, and it flowed from there. And I'm really glad that it went that way. <laughs> the novel was sort of like, it felt like a kind of youthful, I wanted to put everything in there, like every bad thing I'd ever seen and like everything I'd ever thought of, and, which they say of some first novels, but it just was, it was, um, kind of a trash heap. <laughs> um, that leads me to my next question, which is 
when did you know then, how do you know, and when did you know that this was the project, that this was a project that was going to happen? I think like some of us start a lot of projects or have a lot of, you know, 60 pages files in our computers that like could or could not be things or um, ideas in our heads. And I kind of wonder how to answer that question is like when, when, when you know something is real. So when did that happen for you in this book? Um, for me personally, it was really kind of like a lightning bolt moment and it happened. Um, and it was, I think the first time in my life that I ever felt like I had like an idea and I had had plenty of ideas or, or like, you know, I definitely am somebody with 150 like beginnings of projects on my desktop or whatever. And, but I, I got really back into Al-Anon, which is the 12 step program for family and friends or loved ones of addicts and alcoholics. And, and partly because I was kind of dissatisfied with the program, I started getting really interested in like sort of how that, how this disorder had been like invented or how this conceptual terrain had been staked out historically. And I started doing historical research on Al-Anon and then farther back and I'm trained as an academic so I was like getting really interested in in this sort of history of women living alongside this disease and um and once I sort of saw a historical arc that nobody had ever made apparent to me or that I hadn't read about in any of the zillions of addiction books I'd read I thought I want to write this I want to write this story and I'm going to tell my own story alongside it. And that felt really more than I anticipated. It felt like, like the light bulb over your head kind of thing. Like I was like, that's a thing. That's an actual idea. Then I scoured to make sure that nobody else had written the book I wanted to read. Then I sent it to a friend who's an agent and said, please, please tell me there aren't 10 things like this under contract right now. <laughs> and I sort of, I was really scared that I wasn't like, that it wasn't actually a new thing. Um, and you know, I think there are lots of ways in which the book is like a contribution to an existing literature about addiction, but I do think there was like a little bit of novelty to my approach that really did feel like an idea in this really thrilling way. Yeah, I think it's clear, um, like in the beginning of your book right away, you kind of inscribe that space for yourself, which I found myself really attracted to. Um, I think anyone who has lived alongside addiction, and especially a, a woman um, or a person who has taken care, um, in the words of Joy Williams, that um, it would that that it 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 felt that way reading it. Like, oh, I didn't know that I had never articulated this before, and that's I think a good like a really good um, way to frame like how do you know when a project is working for you? Maybe one of the answers is well, when you feel like you're articulating something you have never articulated before and didn't know that you could or needed to. Mm -hmm, exactly. What about for you, Chelsea? Yeah, I just want to add to what Nina was talking about a little bit and just say that um, out of all the addiction memoirs and recovery literature that I've read, I felt like when I got to Nina's book, it was just like this ray of new light in that canon. And it was like what I needed. I've been going to AA since I was like six, you know, with my younger. I, I remember crawling on the ground like under chairs. Um, it's always been a language in my world. Just experiencing it, watching my mom experience it and then having my own self experience it in different ways and going through Al-Anon and all these things. It was just like, oh my God, this book is saying what needs to be said. So thank you so much for writing that. Um, just so original, but for me with this book, with Godshot, I felt like, I think somewhere I knew that I needed to articulate a certain emotional experience that I'd had growing up and that I, I knew that on some level that whatever project I was going to commit to was going to be that. I didn't know what that fictional scope would be. At times I wanted to just write what happened to me, um, but found very, I was very blocked and was really unable to get at that. And so, you know, even in some of the scenes of this book, I would think like, how can I get through this scene in a true way? Um, why can't I just write what happened? But 
that was never going to be right for this book. So it was always this examining my own emotional experience in this world that started coming to me. Um, and I think I just knew that I was going to hang with it was, was really when I finally got into the voice of Lacey May, finally. Um, for me, fiction is so rooted in the voice. I just hear a voice and then the story unfolds it feels sort of like a channeling in a way. And often a lot of my work I would say is pretty voicey. And some of those voices, I just intuitively know that they're not gonna be a novel length voice. Like it's not even a voice I'd wanna take that long, um, but they feel really good for like 15 or 20 pages. And with this voice, I felt like I'd finally tapped into a voice that could tell this emotional experience that I really wanted to get at, but could also be a lens through which I could be really creative and really create a world around it. So I think once those two things clicked into place, um, it just finally seemed like something I could sink into to get at the truth of what I was trying to get at. Yeah, I really feel you on the, when you're writing a scene and it's, like you're saying all the things that happen, but it doesn't feel true. Um, that's such a frustrating experience. And um, going back to like voice and practicing voice and thinking in someone's voice is like a really good reminder. It leads me to a question that I want to ask, but I also get mad that people don't ask it of men who are fathers, and we all should all the time, every time we see them on the street who are writers. But um, because the work of writing can be like, like you indicated, Chelsea, um, so immersive in this way that can be really consuming and distracting, how do you balance that with the work of motherhood, which often requires a lot of, like Nina describes in her book, like a, a love labor and also invisible labor. Um, how do you balance that kind of disappearing into that world and then also being extremely needed in this world? Um, just curious. I'll start. I mean, it's really funny to reflect on this now because now we're like, I keep saying I already did this part of motherhood, but now like the kid with the kids around in everyone's home 24 seven, it's like, I think, God, I was complaining before when like there was like the school day and there was like a whole school day that I had to work, you know? So um, it's, it's a funny thing to, to think about now considering our new reality, but I do feel, um, <clears throat> I, jokingly refer to divorce as like a life hack sometimes but I am lucky that I co-parent with my ex-husband who is wonderful and I have um a little bit more time for sort of like deep focused work I think than a lot of the women I know who are partnered and raising kids um so I'm grateful for that. I feel like I can sometimes get a little, and with this book, that was the way, you know, they, my kids would leave to go to their dads and I would get into like a kind of like dorm mode of just like eating junk foods, writing till four o'clock in the morning. Like I was I really sort of like living two lives and I was so thrilled when they would like come back into my space and imbue it with like this other purpose that was not like writing the darkest shit of my life you know um but i do think it's hard to i think i think the kind of space that's required for writing you know there's the sort of admin work of being a writer of pitching and emailing and and then there's like i mean the real deep focused work of of making a book happen is it's really hard to like arrange for that in any mother's life. And I, I don't have any really like magic tips or tricks or anything, but um, I, I know a lot of people who like go away for long stretches and it's hard to balance that. But I would say that I tried to sort of see the, the mommying time as a reprieve. Like it did feel really, rather than sort of like clocking out of writing and having like more work to do. Like I was always just so, because a lot of what I was writing was heavy, I was really grateful for just the levity of my kids and their, you know, jokes and feeding them. And that was all very simple <laughs> compared to the 
intellectual labor. But it's hard. <laughs> yeah, for me, um, I guess I should get divorced. Maybe I'll have <laughs> I'm not advising. Uh, I'm like writing that down. Just kidding. Um, yeah, I think I was right when I first had my daughter. I realized like this isn't going to happen unless I am really forceful about it happening. Like it's just so easy to have it not happen. Um, but I did feel like I needed that creative expression more than ever. Um, when I was pregnant with her, I remember I went to the McDowell colony actually in this like perfect last second, like retreat that I will never get to do again for years probably. Um, but this performance artist, I just remember her kind of looking at me and she was like, you're just going to get so behind. You're going to be like five years behind all your friends here. You see all these people, their books are going to be out. You're going to be just like with saddle down with this baby. Um, she, maybe it was performance art to see like what I would do, <laughs> but I don't know. I'm grateful. She said that it was an honest thought she was having and it was definitely poking at an insecurity I had because I worried that I would not be able to continue making the art I wanted to make once I had um, a child. And so part of me was just sheer determination not to let that happen. And a lot of it was saying no to a lot of things. You know, I, I spent so much of her, my daughter's babyhood. I was with her all the time. So it was always just any second she was asleep at, you know, early bedtimes. It was always just shaping my day around when can I write? When will be that moment? And really giving myself some kindness and being like, if I only write for 10 minutes, that's great. If I write a sentence, fine. If I write two sentences, great. And it's amazing how much you can get done in two hours when that's all you're going to have that whole week. And it was just like piece by piece, it accumulated. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think after, now that the book is out, I have a second child now. It's a little different with two. I'm doing the babyhood again, although my son's almost two now. Um, once they go into school, it shifts, but I just feel like I'm almost coming up for air for the first time suddenly and just realizing like, wow, I haven't breathed in like five years. I've, it, it's always been work. It's like the second I could um, get away from my child, I was writing and that's what I wanted to be doing. But I'm also now I'm trying to find more balance between like moving my body and taking care of myself in a different way that I don't know. I was just in this laser zone. So I, I feel like if you want it to happen, you can make it work, but it's not easy, you know? Yeah. And I also had the, also the real fear of trusting other people with my kids that just comes from my childhood. And, and so I didn't have a lot of childcare. I didn't have a lot of help, mainly because I was really blocked in that way of, of turning over that control to someone else. So I don't know. Yeah, I those are tips. Maybe it's a little bit like what not to do, <laughs> but um, I want to make sure that everybody, people who are watching, have a chance to ask questions. Should they have them? Yeah, Christine? that's a great question. That's a a great time to do that. If everybody wants to type in, I'll be happy to either unmute you so you can. I'll go ahead and have the mic yourself, or I'll be also I'll be happy to uh, read questions for you, Chelsea. I have to say I am a mob, I'm a mother of a 13 year old, and you will regret nothing. <laughs> you will be so happy you were there, honestly, because you know not only does it start when they're in school, but it really never stops, and they keep moving away and away. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's really ultimately, I guess, our responsibility. You know, our our job is to get them to become independent. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I would push a stroller forever. I never thought that would stop. And then one day you don't have a stroller anymore. So it's, oh. it's wild. <laughs> <laughs> Got a couple people saying uh, that she loves hearing you guys. Katya has said, thank you so much. She loves hearing from everyone. That's nice. How many pages is your book, Nina? Um, like maybe 300. It's a beautiful book. And how about yours, Chelsea? Yeah, I think it's 336, something like that. 326. Beautiful. Yeah. That's so nice. 
We're going to have you guys hold them up so I can get a nice shot for the bookstore, by the way, just for the heck of it. It's so great to have you all here. Yay. Yay. And of course, um, if you're ever here, now, now, Nina, you're in Los Angeles. Chelsea, where are you at? I'm in Portland, Oregon. I'm actually in Oakland, California, but I'm oh. in Los Angeles, or I was frequently. I don't know when we're going to be mobile again, but. When you are, make sure you come by our bookstore. For sure. And uh, sign copies as well. That'd be great. Okay. While people are sort of thinking or um, getting up the courage to <laughs> be on Zoom, um, I have a question that I'm just curious about. Um, and it comes really from this part in Chelsea's book. Um, I just want to um, read it real quick. It's after, I mean, no spoilers, but it's after a moment where the main character, Lacey May, um, something big and traumatic happens to her. Um, and she says, I ran, she said, this is the beginning of chapter eight. The body always knows. I ran the land and felt the valley consume me, push me far, far down Old Canal Road. Barefooted in the bikini, hair blazing out behind me, my hips sharp in the night air. The valley floor sank 13 inches this past year, pulling water from, from underground aquifer ducts. The ground is deflating like a leaky air mattress, the newscaster called the cause of the sinking subsidence. Pastor Vern called it wrath. Um, there's such a specific way that the, you write about place, Chelsea, and um, in a, and you reinvent this Central California that's like hot, I mean, it is hot and dry and um, agricultural and agriculturally starved and agriculturally abundant. And um, I just kind of wondered, um, how you thought about the way that you were writing about the place in and also connecting it to like Lacey's body and what she goes through. Yeah, I think, you know, growing up in the Central Valley of California, there was really no way to separate for me the experience of growing up there and the land itself. It's so agricultural. It's so, it's so much farmland. So much of the world's food comes from there. And also it is often in a really devastating drought space. And so thinking about, you know, the way you live your day-to-day -day life, languishing in the shower, taking baths, sort of going on as if this isn't happening, like literally out your window was really striking to me in adulthood. Um, and certainly there were people, I remember friends' houses having labels on their shower, three minutes, you know, timers, things like that. Um, so there was some awareness, but it always felt a little bit um, out in this space. You, you didn't really have to touch if you didn't want to, except my grandfather, um, he founded the agricultural department at Fresno State. And I was raised by my grandparents and they, they were so connected to the land. So I was always hearing about the land in this really superstitious way and concerned about the frost and the drought and the weather and what it rain and what about harvest. And he really continued that obsession for his whole life and so yeah I guess going through adolescence there and having that experience but also being in this backdrop of this place that was so I think the Central Valley is really unique in a lot of ways it's incredibly polluted it's right at the foot of these beautiful Sierra Nevada mountains that you can't even see when it rains all of a sudden sometimes they appear and it's really startling because they're they're always there but you can't see them because of there's so much pollution. And so there's all of that is just part of your life growing up there. Bad air days, you have to stay inside, things like that. So writing a book about that place, it would be impossible not to include those, those little snippets. It's so um, interesting that you said that, Chelsea, because we just had someone in the audience ask the question, you know, about how much a sense of the place contributed to how you thought about and wrote your novel. Uh, and this person's from the Central Valley, so they really appreciated that. Yeah, we don't get a lot of, um, uh, my grandparents are also from the Central Valley and farmers, and we don't get a lot of representation in literature. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe aside from, um, you know, Dust Bowl literature, but like, it, yeah. uh, 
in contemporary literature. Yeah, it's really nice yeah. to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing like a Kevin Federline documentary. He grew up in Fresno and they were like, oh. Fresno, California. And they showed this like chain link fence wiggling in the wind in total devastation. I was like, okay. <laughs> I know in media, it's not always represented so fully, but um, I felt like I had to do something a little deeper. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the heartbeat of California in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, someone, Abby asks, um, can you tell us what you're reading right now? Do you well, I, um, I just finished uh, Miranda Popke's new novel called Topics of Conversation, which I found really biting and sharp and funny and um, full of really surprising, uh, like a very feminist book full of funny um, critiques of feminism and just a really really interesting woman sort of dark woman narrator and i'm just today about to start um fernanda melchor's hurricane season which just um was translated into english and came out from new directions which looks phenomenal love new directions me too yeah yeah i'm reading um hold on honey I'm the only one that could possibly answer her question. Um, I just finished The Knockout Queen by Ruthie Thorpe that I can't say enough good things about. It just was what I needed right now. It's so engrossing. The voice is so amazing. And I needed to laugh. It's so cliche. I needed to laugh and cry. But like right now, I'm really feeling the need to express, get these emotions out. And that book made me do both of those things in even measure. And it was magical to read. Um, and then I just started Temporary by Hilary Leiker. I'm, I think I'm saying her last name wrong. Leiter. Um, that's so interesting and creative and really language driven and, and awesome so far. So I'm reading um, Sharks in the Time of Saviors. Um, I'm sorry, it's over there, which is why I'm looking. But I think his name is Kwai Strong Washburn. And um, I accidentally ordered two copies, so I need to gift it to someone. But um, which was recommended to me by Megan Fishman, who is Chelsea's publicist and works at Catapult and is a generally wonderful person. But um, it's so uh, it's so beautifully written and inhabits. Since we're talking about voices, it inhabits like at least four, maybe five different points of view, which I really I love when when books do that. Um, because it always, always, always feels interesting because you're always switching. Um, and I can't wait to finish that. That's what I'm reading right now. Um, anything else? Um, I was wondering, um, oh, um, Speaking of doing everything at home, um, how are you able to maintain a writing practice during this time, especially while we're doing book promotion, but also stuck inside and also like existentially terrified of everything? Um, Have either of you been able to maintain a writing practice? How? (laughs) Tell me how. (laughs) Um, It's such a weird time right now. I have been trying to, um, I'm working on a new project and I, um, a friend of mine was staying with me for a while and also working on her own writing project. And we were, this was before shelter in place and we were, um, setting a timer for 15 minutes a day, which Chelsea was just talking about stealing those few moments. Um, and in those 15 minutes, we just were, you know, like, it's like what they call a vomit draft, which I've always hated that phrase, but just sort of getting out whatever we could in these documents. And, um, and since she left and the shelter in place has started, we have sort of like kind of kept up this practice where I will set a timer alone in my house and tell her I've done it. And then we write for 15 minutes and then I text her done. (laughs) And um, honestly, it feels really good to just carve out even just that tiny amount of time. And I know I'm going to have to get to the point where I do the deep work on this project, 
but um, feels really good to just like dump a few thoughts every day. But that's the extent of it with, with homeschooling and uh, mothering and book promotion. Um, that's really all I've been doing, but a little bit feels good. Yeah, definitely. Someone here uh, mentioned, Nina, that they loved how your research was weaved through the book, uh, but also they really loved how much, clear, how much clearly other writers you adore were almost secondary characters. Uh, she said, I'm thinking, or he's thinking, I'm thinking of uh, written on the body, etc. Can you talk a little bit about how your writing and reading influence each other? Mm, that's a great question. Should I answer that now or should Chelsea answer about a writing practice? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just looking at you for a moment here. I say you answer first, Chelsea, and then I will. Oh, okay. It might be connected, actually, when you mentioned written on the body. Um, as far as writing every day, I feel like I've been doing a lot of just my own reading about the way that our bodies store trauma and emotion. And um, Asia kind of opened with that idea. And I'm really fascinated by that. And I've been d diving into the work of um, John Sarno and Nicole Sachs. And one thing that um, Nicole talks about is she calls it journal speak. And it's sort of this daily practice of writing for 20 minutes. And I like to think of it as like rage journaling is more of my definition, but it's different than other journaling I've done before because it's this huge emotional dump of whatever is coming up. You, you're supposed to just kind of write the topic at the top, anything that's bothering you, any little thing, anything you're feeling, and you kind of go. And it's been bizarre at the things that have come up during that and things I've hung onto that I didn't realize were still kind of living in me and affecting me. And it's felt really cathartic to get some of that out. And I think even just doing that every day has been getting me through this time. And it also feels connected to my writing at large. I think any time I'm writing at all, um, that can feel productive. Um, so yeah, I've just been really interested in that and, and kind of learning more about those techniques. I'm gonna do that. I need it. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I'll answer that other wonderful question quickly. I feel so um, fortunate to be like read that way because I do feel like so indebted to um, the writers I love, and I and I sprinkled their names and words throughout the book um, very deliberately, um, and I do feel. Yeah, I think that one of my friends, Laura Smith, also a memoirist, told me to be mindful about my literary diet while I was reading, I mean, while I was writing this book, which I really loved and I really took to heart. And she was basically sort of warning me against, you know, it was kind of encouraging me to read well and read things that I um, wanted to sort of be inspired by or emulate and, and not, um, you know, just be like, aware that those things would sort of trickle into my thinking and writing and um, I really loved that and I tried to um, maintain that while I was writing and I tried to sort of pay homage to what I felt had sort of honestly like granted me the freedom to even think or write in this way about myself so um, I, I think reading good stuff while you're writing is the key <laughs> yeah nice reminder that we don't always have to be churning out you know 2,000 words a day or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up. Um, but I just want to say that I feel so grateful to have done this today. It was a kind of just tough week in general, also like tough 60 days for everybody. But um, this has, for this hour, to not think about any of that and to really just think about how to write or tell the truth is... Um, a real gift. So thank you for joining me in that. Thank you, Asia. That was so fun. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Skylight Books. Yeah, thank you, thank everyone you who came. Thanks so much, Asia. And thank you to Skylight. This was wonderful. And I love Chelsea's book and everyone should read it. Likewise. <laughs> likewise. This has just been so much fun, you guys. Really. It's like a, it's a Mother's Day treat to just kind of get away for an hour and feel pretty normal too. So that was fun. Thank you all so much. We've got a lot Thank you, and can't wait to visit Skylight. Yay, we're excited to get back to you guys. We're not open right now, but please head over to skylightbooks.com, uh, skylightbooks and you can order the girls' books now. They're available, and uh, also you can find out all the news that's going on.
on. We have full events. So we appreciate you guys uh, finding us over there at skylightbooks.com. And I want to give another big thank you to the authors today. Just a terrific job. Chelsea Beaker, thank you so much. Your book, God Shot. Hold that up, Chelsea. God, that's beautiful. I love that cover. Thank and you. then, of course... Yeah, and then, of course, Nina, Renata, Aaron, good morning, destroyer of men's souls. Love that. And thank you, Asia. You're a great interviewer. You did such a good job. Thanks. Good. Thanks so much, guys. Thank Bye, you, guys. Everybody. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.